I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. Joining us here on the podcast today is the brilliant Brooke Rewa, founder of Los Angeles-based Good Milk, the plant-based alternative for those who expect better. We're super excited to have her here with us on the show, talking through her journey of building the brand, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah, I always think it's great to just start out having you give like a brief intro and then maybe even run through like your background before starting Good Milk. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, we've had, I've had quite the evolution on my journey and really I started, um, you know, I came out to LA from Buffalo, New York, um, where I was a vegan. And when you're a vegan in Buffalo, especially the amount of years ago that it was that I moved from there, um, all you have to eat are salads and hummus. Um, so I came out to LA and there's just this wealth of vegan food and vegan grocery stores and, you know, vegan cakes and sausage and burgers. Um, and it was like a whole new world for me as a vegan. Um, when did you move to LA? So it was about 10 years ago. Um, okay. which is hard to believe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's still kind of early in the vegan food evolution in LA. Yeah, yes, it is. But it was still miles ahead of, you know, what was happening on the East Coast, especially in Buffalo. Um, and moved out here um, after graduating. I went to school for film, film and television arts, um, and, you know, wanted to come out here and be a producer, knowing that obviously I'd have to work my, my way up to that. Um, and I started, I got a job with this, like, brilliant writer. Have you ever seen the film um, The Departed? Yeah. So Bill Monahan is the writer. It was The Departed was one of those movies. I sat in the theater after the credits and just sat there staring at the screen like holy shit. Just Yeah, there's a crazy ending in that movie. Yeah, and well and and the thing that I love about film is every single piece of it has to, in order to create a really good film, like that film, every single piece of it was so perfect and beautiful. The music, the editing, the writing, the directing, the acting, like it's such a collaborative thing and everyone just has to be at the top of their game. And I felt like that film just nailed it in every way. Um, and it was one of the things that, you know, inspired me and it was what I loved about film. And uh, my first job, I got to work for that writer. Um, That's amazing. How did you even get connected with that writer? I I think he had a posting job listing on like Craigslist or there's some some special like film industry um, um, places where they post jobs and I was just applying like crazy before I moved out to LA um, and I asked them when they sat down when I got the job I asked them why you know why me <laughs> um, this like silly girl from the middle of nowhere and. They were like, oh, well, Bill really liked that you're an East Coaster and just are super straightforward. And he thinks East Coasters have a better work ethic. 
<laughs> That's such a great reason to hire somebody. Like, I just really like the region of the U.S. that you're from. And I think most people are generally like this from there. So I'm just going to go out on a whim. Yeah. Yeah. And as I got to know him more, it made sense. Like he, you know, he was someone who worked his butt off um, for years um, in his own ways, in the, the ways that writers do, and didn't really get a break until he was like in his early 40s. Um, so now he has all this success and a big, beautiful house and, you know, has, has some great films under his belt, but he was always this brilliant, beautiful writer, um, but, but never really got recognized for it. So he like put in his time and work and, you know, East Coasters, I think have a certain appreciation for that. So there was, I don't think there was any way he was going to hire, you know, someone's nephew that was in the biz or, or anything like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, That's kind of nice though. Yeah, it's one of the rare situations. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's nice. Um, I don't know. I, I like the idea of people that love their craft so much that don't really have success for a long time. And then, I mean, that's not really later in life, but later in life, generally, yeah. kind of, that they do is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I came out here and worked for him. Um, I mean, I think I, I moved out here without a job and without any interviews lined up. And then like two days after, or like the day after New Year's, I, I got an uh, email to come in for an interview for him and like got the job within a few weeks um, and was off to the races. Um, but it, it was a strange job, a strange first job. Every, all of my first jobs kind of led me up to, to starting my own business. Um, but that job was you know, it was a lot of like figuring it out for yourself. He was directing his first film or had just directed his first film in London. So it was in post-production and, um, you know, he was trying to make a name for himself as a director, which I don't think he's done just yet. <laughs> um, but when you're a director, there's a, you have to be organized and there's a lot that goes behind it and you're part of promoting the film and, you know, and it was still a small budget, smaller budget film in the world of film. Um, so it was a lot of like do it yourself stuff. And that was the stuff that I helped him with, like setting up a website and like the social media stuff. If it was called London Boulevard, um, it's a film that's out. You can, you, you can see it. Um, um, but so it was a lot of that stuff and then a lot of research projects and really not a ton of leadership from him because he wasn't used to having, you know, employees. Um, were you, were you the only employee that was working directly for him? He, he had one other, but she, she was, um, had been working for him for a few years and was at a much higher level. And it's, we didn't have an office. Like I worked out of a little building on his property. Um, you know, so it was me, it was me doing film and TV stuff. And then also like going and getting his groceries for his family and like taking his kids to school every day. Um, so it was quite the combination of like personal and then, and then work stuff. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it served its purpose and I learned a lot and I learned how to work on my own and be productive. Um, and it kind of just fell in line with this, theory that I, I've had and has served me throughout life, which is like, you know, say yes, and then and then figure it out. You know, if it's a good opportunity, say yes, and figure it out as you go. Um, so that you mean, you mean, in terms of like learning new things? Yeah, I think so. Or with business with opportunities, you know, um, there have been some opportunities that come to us where we're like, holy shit, that's a great opportunity. But 
<laughs> we don't have that product yet, or we don't know how to scale that product or, you know, name the list of things. And, you know, I am more often than ever, I say yes and <laughs> figure it out. And, and it usually works out, even though my team sometimes wants to kill me because they're <laughs> behind the scenes, um, putting it all together and, and scrambling. Um, but there have been plenty of times where we've said yes, you know, figured it out with many headaches, um, but then been grateful on the other side that we didn't miss the opportunity because it's turned into something great. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like that's a great philosophy for life. Also creates an interesting life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a very good point. So my my husband, who is not, I wouldn't say the opposite of that, but he is incredibly thoughtful, um, you know, definitely thinks everything through and thinks about all the different scenarios. Um, you know, I, I often find myself apologizing to him. He's, he's now a part of the business as well. Um, but also in our personal life, just being like, you know, the, the shoulder shrug of like, yeah, sorry, we're, we're doing this again. Um, but he, I think he will even admit that most times it, it turns out for the better. So then how did you end up, like, what was the original idea and how did you end up launching Good Milk? Is Good Milk your first endeavor into entrepreneurship or no? It is um, an evolved endeavor. So I started um, with a cold press juice line. Um, I left when I, I left the bill, the writer director and started working for a um, producer because I wanted to do development and he was in reality, which I didn't, I never loved reality TV, but um, he was kind of a one man show. So I knew that I could get really close to helping him develop these ideas and concepts. Um, so started working with him and he had this side project of um, it's like the most LA thing business possible is a model staffing agency. It still exists and does very well. It's called runway waiters. So you hire runway <laughs> models to um, come serve hors d'oeuvres or bartend or greet people or or sometimes just hang out and pretend that they're guests. What a random side <laughs> business. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, so he had that with another partner um, and I just started just being around, started helping that side business, which they, the two of them were just not, not organized, not really business oriented, but they could do the selling piece and the networking piece they were really good at. So I started diving into that and helping just set up the foundation of the business. Not that I knew what I was doing, but I knew the logical steps and could take them one at a time. And um, found out that I really liked that. And I started because I was a part of the, the putting together the building blocks of this business. I really, my heart was really in it. I really cared about the success of this business. Um, and so I decided to go work for that business full time um, because the, the partner who really ran it was a young kid. I mean, he was probably like 22 at the time, he had a model himself, and it was his idea. And he was so great at being the one out networking and the, the relationships with the, the, I mean, you can imagine these clients are wealthy, very wealthy people, individuals, or like, you know, Hermes and Louis Vuitton and like these these high-end brands so he was great with the the relationships but he wasn't good with the organization of it and the contracts and the payroll and all of those things so I went over and decided to work with him full-time to help him grow that um and you know it wasn't my passion at all um, 
Um, but it was fun to in those early startup days. And we got that to a certain point and I started to get kind of bored um, and was trying to push him into going into new cities. And I would help lead the build out in new cities. And, um, you know, it was going slower than I wanted. And through that, I met this woman who was, was making these snack bars, like raw snack bars. Um, and she had hired models to work a trade show for her. And I, I, you know, had the call where I was like collecting her credit card or something and just started talking about her product and it was so good. And I loved it. And come to find out she had just had a baby and had no experience, had no way to scale this, like didn't really know what she was doing. And I was like, oh, well, I'll come, I can help you like on the weekends, you know, I can run your Facebook and do sampling and stuff. And the more that I got into learning about her business and I kept being like, you know, people are asking where they can buy the product and when it's going to be out, the more I realized like she was, she was never going to get it over the line herself. Um, so I convinced her to hire me to help her build out this, this snack bar line and figure out how to scale it, which we did. We got it to a point where, you know, we scaled up the recipes in the commercial kitchen first and then took it to, a, I found a co-packer um, that I would like sleep overnight in their parking lot because we'd ha have to wake up at like 3 a.m. It was like a baker. So they start super early um, and I'd have to be there for the whole process for weeks. Um, we got a broker, we started selling into stores and we got that to a level where, um, you know, the, the pieces that I liked were kind of handled and it came to being a salesperson. And I was like, I don't want to sell like, yes, this is a great product, but it's not changing lives. If I'm going to sell something, I'm not a natural salesperson. You know, it has to be something I really, really care about. And I had been going through my own health issues and had gotten into cold pressed juice and just was shocked by the, um, the benefits that I saw from it and really thought that it was a product that people could change people's lives. Um, as far as like, you know, pushing them toward feeling good and understanding how food is medicine and making better food choices. So I went to her and said, Hey, I'll still do all this stuff. I think we should hire someone for sales. Um, but let's launch a juice line and I'll run that. Like here are all the reasons I'm, I'm really passionate about it. And you know, here's my ideas. And she was like, no. <laughs> um, I was going to say, if, if this person said yes, they're either extremely wealthy independently and not too worried about finances, or you're extremely persuasive. <laughs> well, that's the reason that I pitched it is they were like her husband had been financing the business. I mean, I learned so I, it was like literally every three weeks I had to write up a, a plan to get more like another hundred thousand dollars from her husband. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so great learned, practice for yeah. later in life. Yes, absolutely. I learned a lot. I also learned, um, you know, the mistakes you make when money isn't something that you have to factor into the decision-making process. Like we, she, I was a really great executor, um, and liked executing and, um, she basically had all these ideas and any idea she had, I would execute. Like I helped her launch a, an almond butter line. Um, I helped her launch a food truck. Um, and this is, this is all in a period of a year. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then I guess it is shocking that she didn't do the press juice. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I think it wasn't, you know, it wasn't her idea and maybe the funds were running out or running low. So she was like, I kind of got to focus. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a great learning experience, certainly. Um, <laughs> and she said no. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to do it myself. You know, looking back at my previous 
you know, three jobs, I knew I could get a business to a certain place. I knew the first few steps, at least, you know, like the first six months worth of steps I knew. Um, and did I didn't you, really think. Did you keep your job with her during? No, um, no, I had an opportunity for a consulting job for um, uh, a place that was on Abbott Kinney. Um, that's, that's not, it's not there anymore, but it was, um, you know, they were switching this little window over to a juice smoothie coffee bar place and they needed someone to help consult on recipes and stuff. And a, a friend recommended me, um, I'd never consulted for anything <laughs> before, but I was like, how, yeah, like how much do I need for this, this juice idea? And how much can I talk this guy into paying me? Obviously I'll, I'll do the work. Um, yeah. but so, and I signed a three month contract to consult, do this consulting job with him. Um, and that is how I got money for the, the, my first little juicer and our first like set of bottles, um, and the basics to get it started. That's great. <laughs> what a, what a great setup it was to have the consulting gig. Yes. It just, you know, was one of the things that couldn't have fallen into place even, you know, if I had grew up myself. Yeah. Just total coincidence. Yes, exactly. So then you you launched the Press Juice brand. Was that under the same name? Um, no, it was called Renew Juicery when we launched it. And um, did you have a physical location or or was it B2B wholesale? So it started wholesale um, because I didn't have any funding or any money. And then um, once I had built up enough money from wholesale and we did farmer's markets, that was a big, um, you know, really where I got my start was the farmer's market. And that would allow, you know, cash in every week um, and to reinvest. Um, and we would sell through quite a bit. We were in the right farmer's markets. Um, so we were all wholesale and I decided to open up a storefront because I didn't know any better. <laughs> And I looked around and, and this was, um, you know, I don't know if you remember like juice served here. Yeah. Um, you know, it was press juicery in the hey, it's heyday, like all these other juice companies had storefronts. And I was like, oh, duh, like that's where <laughs> money is. You got to have a storefront. Um, you know, had I known then, <laughs> I know now uh, that it just wasn't a good idea. I mean, it was nice in some ways. It gave us our community a place to get our stuff consistently every week. Um, but we were profitable in the days of, of just having a wholesale business. And, um, you know, with a brick and mortar, you're stuck in one location and people are not traveling, you know, 15, 20 miles to come to your storefront. You have a very small radius of people that you're working with. And, you know, some of it's like just crossing your fingers and opening your doors, praying that they come in. So we actually had the storefront for four years. We just closed it down. Once COVID hit, we were, you know, we were thinking about it just because our focus has become so much on the milk and we see some really clear paths with that. Um, and then once COVID hit, we were like, okay, it's time. Our so you just... had, you had that retail store up until very recently. Did yeah. you transition that to be a good milk retail location? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, we were still selling the cold pressed juices, but only there. Um, and, uh, we were selling our, our milks. We have some flavored milks that we were only doing there. We had our frozen milks, which is, that's a product that's available nationally. Um, and then some other local, um, local vendors had, we had products in there. Um, that's crazy. I, I was imagining that you were talking about years ago that you got out of that business and then moved on. No, I think that, you know, 
here's the thing too, when you start a business because of, you know, we can, we can get into my own wellness journey, but there was so much emotion wrapped in up and there still is so much emotion wrapped up in my business. Um, you know, and there's these, this, we have these bigger missions. Um, and you know, I feel really passionately about introducing people to real food and giving them great options. And I, you know, like I set out to do, I saw one bottle of juice really change the way people felt and change their mindset on health and wellness. And that's a very emotional thing. And it was really hard to let go of. Um, you know, so when, when something like a virus that shuts, <laughs> shuts everything down hits and you go into survival mode, it's a moment where you just snap out of it and things become very black and white when you're in survival mode. So in yeah. survival mode, it was a no brainer. I had to let go of any emotional things that I felt and look at the numbers on a spreadsheet and say, this is what makes sense versus this is what doesn't. Um, so in some ways that was a little bit of that like extra nudge where I already knew the answer, but my emotions didn't have an opportunity to get in the way of the decision-making. Yeah. It's funny. I, I've said the same thing about the COVID uh, situation. It's like, even for people that are put in terrible situations, which is very unfortunate, it's also probably in the long run, kind of a nice thing because it forces you to like relook at the things that aren't working and you don't have the option of just ignoring those right. things anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is some good that can come out of this. And like, that's the position we kind of need to be in now as a population is just figuring out how to frame it and find, find the good and, and learn some lessons, hopefully. Yeah, totally. So then you were operating that retail store. Where where in the path did you actually come up with the idea for Good Milk? And then what was the process like to actually launch Good Milk? Were you running the two businesses simultaneously then for a while? Yep. Yeah. Um, so and it ended up kind of the milk kind of falling under the juice, even though it had its own brand. Um, but you know, being out at the farmer's markets, there, there was part of it was kind of customer demand. The other piece was on my own healing journey, juice was a huge, huge piece of it. Um, huge piece of helping me heal. But what it came down to was, I was consuming a lot of processed foods, but not like chips and soda, I was consuming processed plant based foods. Um, that I thought were healthy because they were vegan, you know, I, um, and I think that's a pass that plant-based gets a lot is we assume because something's plant-based, it's automatically healthy, where most of these things, you know, the, the processed burgers and, you know, st stuff of the world are actually really not good for you. Um, and plant-based milks are one of those. And I had no idea. Um, so this holistic nutritionist, um, um, woke me up to that after I spent a year going to all these doctors, you know, I had major digestive issues trying to figure out what was wrong with me to the point where I was afraid to eat. That's why I got into juicing. Um, and she was like, Oh, you're, you're eating a bunch of processed foods. We got to cut those out. And one, the one that I was the most surprised about was my almond milk and just, just kind of crushed too, because I was like, wait a minute, it's been marketed to me for all these years that this is a healthier option that this is good almond milk, plant-based milks are good for you. And also I was a vegan at the time. So what were my options? I wasn't going to go back and drink dairy. Um, 
So I was like, what the heck? And I Googled how to make homemade almond milk. It's and, funny. Um, I- it's funny because the way I got introduced to your brand is because my my wife loves good milk, but also she um like years ago when we were dating still and we were living together, she would make almond milk at home. And I was like, what are you doing? And she was like, almond milk at the store is terrible for you. You shouldn't drink it. Like, and went into this whole thing. She's convinced her whole family, but she loves your product. So that's the way that I found out about good milk originally. I love that. And you're, <laughs> wife is so right and that was the the path that I took I was like okay home I can make this homemade for myself but I don't know if you saw her with that process but it's a pain in the butt and it's really messy and then the milk tastes so good that it doesn't last very you know I would my husband who was my boyfriend at the time I would make it and put you know a quart of it in the refrigerator and then I catch him like chugging the whole thing down in 20 seconds and I'm like dude do you know how much work it took to make that um drink it slower (laughs) (laughs) or maybe not at all like (laughs) that um so I was like okay this is amazing it's so delicious but there's you know, there's no way this is a viable option for people to make make this, especially if you have a household with children in it, you know, you're going through a ton. Um, so between that, and then between when you own a juice business, people think you automatically know everything about health and wellness. So being out of the farmer's market, people would come up to me and tell me all their like problems about being sick or not feeling well or anything health and wellness related in their lives. Um, and I had a lot of moms coming up and telling me, you know, very excitedly that they were switching their kids from dairy to to almond milk or to plant-based milks. And they were so happy about it and like looking for my approval. And I just couldn't get excited about it knowing like what the options were that were available, you know, this crappy processed and mostly chemical plant-based milk. Um, so I just started like bringing a few bottles to, uh, to the farmer's market of the stuff I was making at home to see if, if people were interested and it, it took off. It's um, so funny that you talk about that. Cause I like, I, th- I think a couple of years ago, I got fascinated with farmer's markets in general. Like I've always gone to farmer's markets, shopped at farmer's markets, but I got fascinated with them for business because I was like, I feel like these places are amazing to start small businesses and people just like look down on them or assume that it's small business going on. But in reality, it's like the most vibrant customer base that comes back over and over again. It's loyal. The loyalty is a real thing. Um, There's also, you know, a lot of times it's the founder standing at these farmers market, you're getting real time feedback from customers, whether you want it or not. Um, but you, you know, who your customer is, you know, and you can make adjustments really quickly based on the feedback that you're getting, you can launch new flavors or new SKUs really quickly. Um, you know, we were the, we were doing a couple at one, one market, we do like $2,000 a day. Um, and I'm working it, so I'm not paying staff to be there. You know, you pay a small percentage to the farmer's market. It was the Marvista farmer's market is where I started. And I give so much credit to that market for, you know, the early days of my business. And even now how we've shifted 
without that market, we wouldn't be where we are. And that community um, just has been so loyal to us throughout the years. And so many of them have become my friends. And you can imagine, you know, I've seen to kids grow from like babies to, you know, yeah. <laughs> almost adults. Um, and I think to those early days where I was standing there selling $20 bottles of plant-based milk um, and $10 cold pressed juices, um, the, that niche group, the feedback and the encouragement um, just went such a long way. Yeah. I mean, you probably learned so much in it's like, that's such a healthy way to start a business rather than like raising a bunch of money up front, not knowing if anybody's going to even want what you're making, let alone what they think about it. Yeah, it blows my mind when, um, you know, new founders, I, I, now that we've raised um, and we're a part of this community of founders, I get a lot of founders that come to me when they're thinking about raising, asking questions, um, talking about valuation, um, talking about how much they should raise. And it, it kind of blows my mind. First of all, anyone who's trying to raise without proof of concept, um, I think, especially after this pandemic, it's going to be really difficult. Um, but there is just so much you learn by being scrappy and in those early days. Um, and we didn't raise until we had proof of concept of this, this frozen thing, knowing that we had something that we could scale with. Um, so we were, we were around for a few years without just fully bootstrapping and the things that I learned, I mean, you just have to be so scrappy. Um, the things I learned in those days, um, are just lessons that, you know, if I had money, I just would have made so, so many more mistakes for sure. Yeah. You, I mean, you probably would have ended up paying, literally paying to learn the same thing. Yes. That's a very in large sums of money. <laughs> Yeah. And also the leverage that you have when you have some sales under you for, to get a good valuation. And, you know, we had, we had about, I think a million, maybe a little over a million dollars worth of sales before we went out to raise. And that means there's that much less of your company that you're going to give away your company that you've busted your ass for and like literally grown with blood, sweat and tears. Um, you know, I, and I, I also imagine that, um, I mean, this has to be true. Like the fact that you already had sales and you had a viable business regardless. It's like, if you believe in the idea and you want to invest in the team and the idea, that's amazing. But if you don't, that's right. also great. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, we weren't in a desperate place, which is always a good place to be when you're <laughs> Um and we were in a place where it was like, okay, we've proven this. We have this idea to expand on what we've done in this new, um, this new innovative way, this new format, um, something that's, you know, a quality product that's never been done before. Um, you know, and we have partners that have said, yes, they're into it and they're on board and that there's still a ton of risk there. And, you know, I think back in my first raise, we had... I had this concept for the frozen um, concentrate that we now are scaling with. I had tested it in like, I had taken the coconut, like bought a bunch of coconut waters a few different times, emptied out the coconut water and tested the, the, the blast freezing in those pack, those containers, which were not containers we were ever going to use in my girlfriend who my girlfriend had an ice cream shop in her blast 
tiny little blast freezer, which was way too small of a freezer for what we were ever going to use. So we had never tested it at scale. We had never tested it on the right equipment in the right packaging. Um, and I just went to investors with this idea that I was pretty sure it was going to work. Obviously, I didn't tell them. I, you know, <laughs> I had a ton of confidence when I was talking to them. Um, but it wasn't until like six months after we had launched it and had a bunch of partners with it that I looked back and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> what if this didn't work? I mean, the way that you did it is pretty conservative compared to most. Like you already had proof of concept in the fact that people wanted to buy the things that you were making in the general right. space. And like you had probably overcome a lot of like figuring out how to do things, obstacles, whereas most people like go out to raise money and they haven't done any of that part. And then on top of it, they don't know if they're even going to be able to make whatever they're talking about. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when you put it that way, we were in a good position. Um, but it, but it is a crazy time to take money and then be like, oh, now we actually have to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, it was the first time we were able to spend on bulk packaging. We bought equipment. Um, Did you always have the vision of making good milk something that could be sold nationwide when you were at the farmer's markets or was the farmer's markets really just like an intro into building a sustainable business that would support your life and, and do good for the people around the business also? Yeah, I think that the the first step was like, look, I want to do something that I love and feel really passionate about. Um, the, the, the money piece wasn't necessarily a, a factor in it. Like I had to support myself. Um, and I think it evolved like the first phase was like, I want to, I want to help my local community and, and serve my local community. Um, and then that just evolved naturally where it was like, this has to go beyond L LA in LA. We have more access to options, better options than anywhere. Like I want this to be a product that's available to my family who lives in the middle of nowhere in New York state. Um, and so it, it definitely evolved over time, certainly on day one of making almond milk in my kitchen. I would have never been like, I think I should turn this into a concentrate and freeze it. You know, um, our business has evolved with customer needs. And as you, you know, as we've gone deeper, we've seen these pathways open up. So even then plant-based milk wasn't cool. Like I, I would say that plant-based milk in the past two years has gotten much cooler and a much um, hotter topic than it ever was. Um, so plant-based milk wasn't that cool. It was just a commodity. Um, it still is kind of a commodity, um, other than our brand and maybe Oatly. Um, but you know, Oatly came to the U S and kind of paved the way for this bigger conversation around plant-based milks and made it more fun and more popular, um, and got, you know, all the baristas on board. So, um, well, I'm not a fan of that product. I think they have paved a way for the next phase of the conversation of these like better, you know, they made plant-based milk cool and popular. Okay. When you look at their, the liquid that's in their box, it's garbage. So let's like keep going on, on that. <laughs> I have strong opinions, um, <laughs> but like, let's take it now to the next level and make a product that's cool and fun and actually is really good for our our customers and also good for the planet and that's where our stuff comes in well it's funny because that's like even though the that plant milk 
or plant-based milk now is cooler. It's like, that's the level of knowledge that most people still have. Absolutely. And that's where um, this pathway through coffee shops has been really important and really great for us because you can go into your favorite local coffee shop and taste and experience our product. And we will win on taste and experience every single time. So it's a very low barrier for you to be able to, to have that. And where we find a lot of our customers finding us is they've been into these coffee shops and are like, holy shit, what is this? Ask their barista or they see our name on the menu and then they come find us and want product for their homes as well. And are you, are you um, selling like boxed or I don't, I don't know what the correct term would be like boxed or um, bottled milk or plant-based milk like that in stores as well? Or is it the the frozen? We um, we only sell, so we have two formats. We have frozen and our powdered format, which the powdered is our newest. Um, we basically will do every, any anything and everything possible to not, um, you know, process the milk and add the binders and gums and preservatives. So that's where this, the blast freezing technique comes into place um, for our frozen. And then our powdered milk is just our milk freeze dried. So none of the, you know, most powders have maltodextrin and all kinds of other junk in it. Ours is just almonds and salt. And then we add a little bit of maple sugar um, and we launched it as a creamer, but you could use it exactly the way that you use milk. Um, so that's where it's exciting, but also very difficult is we have to change consumer habits to not go to the shelf and grab the box of milk or not go even the refrigerated or section where there's a bunch of brands that are in the refrigerator that don't need to be refrigerated, but they've put them in there because consumers think that it's better for them if it's refrigerated. That is, is so fascinating. Yes. That's for sure true though. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really messed up. Also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me, I for sure would think something was better or fresher yeah. if it was refrigerated. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we are changing consumers' habits to going to the freezer section um, for their alt milk. So that's where grocery is not a, such an important channel for us right now. We are in a few local shops, Erwan being our biggest partner, um, you know, in five of their locations. And it does really well there, but it is our backyard where our cus customers know our, our brand and product. And Erwan has like a pretty interesting freezer section anyway. So you're probably going there to check it out. Um, there's a lot of discovery happening at a store like Erwan. Um, so we're just dabbling in grocery, but really our model is to increase B2B visibility with our coffee shop, smoothie shop partners, increase direct-to-consumer visibility where people are you know, coming to our website, getting that full experience, becoming a part of the brand, the lifestyle, the community, and then we'll let those things inform how we roll out grocery. And <clears throat> how has... How has the whole COVID um, situation changed the way that you're planning or strategizing around that idea of growing the brand and the visibility through the coffee shop model? <laughs> I know this is probably like a live topic right now, but yeah. I'm just curious for myself. <laughs> no, I mean, our strategy for the year has completely changed. Um, we had some really great expansion planned with our current partners and we had 
some really cool partners in New York that we were launching with. And, you know, we hope all of that still happens. It's just no one knows when. Um, so pretty much around like March 16th, um, a bunch of our bigger partners shut down, Blue Bottle shut down, Intelligentsia shut down, and like most of the smaller ones followed. We probably have like six or so shops that are still open out of 200. Um, however, we were really lucky in, we saw that drop to almost zero. And within two days, we saw our online sales increase dramatically. And online was something we had up and running, but we didn't really have an eye on it. You know, it was kind of like, let's get this up. Let's, let's start to gather some information, but we don't have the ability to spend a ton of time and money on it. Um, so really, really grateful that we had that up and grateful that people wanted our product. And I think our formats of frozen and powder started to make more sense than ever to people because of the COVID crisis. Um, so we saw those, our online sales shoot up dramatically. And now we've completely shifted the business to focusing online, um, you know, working through making sure that customer experience is great, um, retention now that we have a ton of new first time users, um, and really building out what our online roadmap looks like, um, which isn't something we had fully planned for this year. Um, we were going to tap into it probably toward the end of the year and, and really start to grow it next year. Um, but it's giving us a great opportunity to focus. Um, you know, I was on a, some kind of web seminar on online marketing at 8am this morning, just like listening and trying to absorb everything. When we get off this, I'm like diving deep into our, our email sequences. Um, so it feels like running a completely different business other than yeah. the, the production and, and product piece. Um, but as I'm digging into it, it's starting to get more exciting. And um, I think it's interesting for you guys too. <clears throat> we focus solely on SMS and email marketing, um, primarily email for most clients, but SMS is layered on top. And I think the interesting thing is you guys have such a, an opportunity for education based content yeah. that you probably can't communicate with people in any other format. And those, like the email sequences for you guys can be like an entire education platform that brings people into the world that you've created around health and wellness and like introduces why this type of product is, is even relevant for you to make for yourself, let alone for other people. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great perspective. Um you know, it's, it's hard too, I think, when you're so close to the, the brand and products and it just a lot, you know, I would never touch box plant-based milk, <laughs> obviously. Like there's so much of it that's just like logical to me, but I forget I'm so absorbed in this world. So it's sometimes hard to step out and be like, oh no, no, we need to give customers more information on this piece or explain this a bit more. But yeah, you make a really great point. Totally. I also think like the food uh, what we've seen is the food and beverage industries have almost gotten like new life in a way through this. I mean, obviously it's created challenges on other sides of the business, but it has created new life with the storytelling pieces of it, because I just don't think people had the time and or the need to invest that much in like the area of marketing that we focus on is probably not that attractive to most people, but it makes revenue for the brands. And it also is like such an easy way for somebody to learn 
and truly learn about a product that they then become fans of the brand and come back over and over again. I think that's like, that's so great that you have the opportunity to do it because I also think it could inform like the way that you educate people in store. Absolutely. You're, you're hitting some, some really great points there. And, you know, we are pricing, we're never going to win pricing wise. We are a premium product. You look at our nutrition facts. We have six times the protein of any of the other almond milks on the shelf, which will tell you we use six times the actual almonds. Um, you know, it's organic, it's small batch, it ships frozen. Um, so we're never going to win on price. And that's where people have to understand our brand and the values um, and all of the whys in order to, to buy in. And we have a, a high lifetime value currently because our early adopters do buy into that and absolutely get that. And yeah, I think the more what we've seen, you know, face to face is the more information you give people, they can't go back and not oh, totally. Know that and so they they make better decisions um so yeah definitely we have an opportunity for all those abandoned cart emails or you know people are just dabbling and maybe doing a small order to definitely give them some more information and you know once you know you know um and that's always been been my thing it's like that's where it's so confusing to be a consumer and there's so much misinformation. And one of our biggest goals is to just give you the information and then make a good product available. And once you have that information, you can do what you want, but we're still in a phase where people just don't even know they don't have the right information. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And also like just recreating the sense of the farmer's market. Like the reason why people love the product is because like, they were able to talk to you and hear it directly from you. And you probably are explaining things that like most brands, when they go online, they just assume people know or assume people don't, they, they aren't interested yet. If you sold that product in person to somebody, you would tell them details that you would never yeah. even think of explaining online, which are obviously relevant because people love buying it in person. Yeah. Yeah, great points. Um, what do you, how, how has it been transitioning your team to working like in this new format in terms of selling more online and obviously working, rem I guess, possibly working remotely? I don't know if you guys are still in production and at a facility that is yours or if that is uh, with a co-packer or something of that nature. Yeah, no, we produce everything ourselves. So thanks to our online orders, we, we've been able to keep that side of the team um, up and running. Um, but, you know, pretty early on when we saw our B2B shops closing, we had people on the team dedicated only to B2B um, that we had, we had to lay off. Um, so we laid off five or six people early days and we're running kind of on a skeleton team and just trying to shift um, into this, this online model and, you know, none of us had expertise in it. So we're, we're trying to understand and make the right decisions. And I guess I'm becoming the leading expert, <laughs> on the team. <laughs> um, which I'm barely a step ahead of anyone. Um, and then the logistics of, you know, our biggest product before was our barista blends. Um, and now we're making, you know, 10 times the amount of this other product and going through a 3PL. And so the logistics behind that has taken the team 
a lot of energy to get organized on and then completely redoing our financial model, um, applying for all these, these, um, grants and loans. Um, so it's been, you know, this week is kind of the, the tipping point of like finally getting into the growth side where it's been kind of just, um, you know, scrambling to figure things out, maintain shift, um, and come up with a plan. And now we, we feel like we have the plan and we're executing on it. So it, this week feels a lot better than the past few have. And how have you, um, how I, obviously you guys have raised money, you have investors. How has it been balancing the expectations of growth and obviously survival also, um, and communicating with investors on like, all of the shifts that you're having to to deal with? I think overall, our, our current investors get it. And I was pretty proactive um, that first week when I, you know, had some good news I, that about our online sales going up. I sent them an, an email just kind of re- recapping it all um, and telling them the things that we needed help with. So a, a chunk of our investors have stepped up to, you know, talk through stuff and, you know, just ask questions. Um, we were in the middle of a fundraise, so that obviously got put on hold. Um, no one's not, uh, I should say not many larger VCs are deploying capital right now. So that's where we're going back and relying on, you know, completely changing the models. You have to look, we have to get to break even and profitability very quickly, um, which is a great, a great exercise and something we that was always important to us anyway, um, even though we weren't there. Um, and, you know, I think it's a time where this is, this is a time where our investors are just going to be happy to see their portfolio companies make it to the other side. They're not expecting a ton of growth. They know all of the plans for the year have gone out the window. Um, we do have an opportunity to, to see some growth. It'll be much, much smaller than we planned, but hopefully if we do things right, we will see some growth. Um, but I think most of them are just like hunkering down to figure out who in their portfolio is going to survive and who has no chance. What a crazy time. Yeah, it is crazy. And it makes me so, you know, historically, I, I, you know, the grass is always greener and it's, you see these service companies that are services or, um, you know, beauty companies that have insane margins. And I've always joked, like, why the heck did I pick food? Um, but food it's a good time to be in food i think it's the only thing that's really growing um oh yeah i mean we we do uh we manage and run email and sms for a snack box brand um and it's the idea is basically like moms that love healthy food for their kids that are alternatives to things with shitty ingredients curate and send out a box every month and I think over the past uh, 30 days, their sales have doubled online. And they were already only an online business. But just from the fact that people are like more aware of what's going on, they need more help at home. And then on top of it, they're looking for healthy options because most people are a little bit uneasy about the their own health and wellness in general, that it's like been such an opportunity for I think food snack and beverage brands to grow online especially in a space that they probably didn't even 
consider viable before. Yeah, we've seen a lot of food brands that didn't have anything set up for direct consumer scrambling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that would be a crazy time to even try and launch something. I also think like there's one split moment when people were ready to make the switch to buying a brand like yours online. If you didn't have it set up at that moment, right. they probably would have left and never come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know those are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> I meant it in a positive way. <laughs> no, just missing out on moments. We want to be there for every moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess um, to round things out, it's kind of a hard question to ask because there's so much that has changed that's changed since you started the business. Like what advice would you have given yourself when you started out? Now knowing, I mean, you've been through a lot, especially now. Is there anything that you would have liked to have known going into it that you don't think you had a clear view of at the, at the time? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question. It's probably a long list. Um, however, there is some gratitude for every step and every mistake and every good thing informing the next. And so I don't know that I would have like had the thought process or made the conclusions without having my actual journey. One thing that I do, I wish that, you know, there was more the fundraising. I wish I had a better understanding of, you know, when you start fundraising, you're pretty, it pretty much means you're going to be a business that is fundraising multiple times. Um, and there are responsibilities that come with that and expectations for growth um, that come with that. Um, and that's okay. Um, but I wish I had understood like what it meant to step into that journey, the full picture of it, where, you know, I was fundraising, I was just thinking about that one raise. I mean, I remember, so we, the first raise was, five, we raised $500,000 and um, we closed it and they were wiring the money. And my husband's like, so, so what now? And I was like, I guess it just shows up in the bank account. And he's like, $500,000 is just going to show up in the bank account. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And there was like an issue with the wire. So we had to get our banker involved. And, you know, I got off the call, was on the phone with him. And he's like, okay, perfect. It's done. Great. And I hung up the phone and opened my little mobile app. And there was $500,000 in my bank account. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, it was just such a surreal thing. And something that I'll never feel that way about, you know, fundraising money again. Um, but I was just so, so shocked that anyone would even give me money for my business. Um, that you're just thinking about that first raise and you not understanding what it means to grow a business with capital behind it, with other people's money. Um, so I think I wish there was, and, you know, maybe this is something I'll create after this business, but like, a real like course or school or something that you could go to, to really understand the, the whole spectrum of this and all your options and just have a bigger, bigger picture understanding than, um, you know, taking it one step at a time, because you really have to back yourself out from what is your end goal. And that's what should inform your fundraising, um, plans. And, you know, I was taking my business from, 
the farm, we were still in the farmer's market when we raised our first money. Like, how would I know anything about VC capital or, you know, building a business to a, you know, we were doing a million dollars and like, now we have to build the business to a hundred million or more. Um, you know, those are the expectations. So I think that I would just, that's the advice that I would give is, is take the time to really understand all the things that come along with raising money and make sure that it's aligned with the plan that I had for the business. It's, it's interesting because we, so our team all works within a project management tool called Basecamp. Oh, that's awesome. And um, I always read and listen to the two founders because they are privately owned and they've, they, uh, they took capital from Jeff Bezos before Amazon was as big as it is now, but they took $2 million and I think they sold him like a 2% stake in the company, but the funding wasn't for the business. It was for them to take like a million dollars each out of the business. Okay. So they don't like they're very critical of Jeff Jeff Bezos publicly because they don't agree with his decisions since then. But they also just talk about like the idea of raising money and um, just being aware of like you're saying, like what you're signing up for and the life that you're creating for yourself. And and then the drastic differences like with their business being profitable from day one. They always talk about like making money is a skill and it takes practice. So if you create a system around you that is really good at spending money, that is also something that you practice. And the day that you try and flip it, it's going to be a lot harder if you haven't been practicing the one thing the entire time, which I totally think is true. Yeah, I think we're we're heading into a new phase, and this is this is something we we we've always felt it was really important to um, if we're not pro- running the business profitably to be very close to that line and understand how to quickly get there. You know, before I raised money, we were a profitable business, um, and VCs just don't have that mentality. You know, it's like spend and grow at all costs, which is never has never sat well with me and it's it's not something we've put into play um but i think that will change after this um you know because those businesses that were had you know a two hundred thousand dollar a month plus burn how do you survive this yeah Um, i I totally agree i think like i think there's been a lot going on that's leading to that shift in general like they always talk about other software platforms. I think this is so interesting. Like, so Evernote, which is like a notes app. Um, I, I think at one point they were valued at like $1.5 billion and they were like one of the rocket ship businesses that got raised a ton of funding over the years and they had so much success everybody loved the app it's kind of like the we work situation and um they're like that business has been around for 10 or 12 years at this point and it hasn't made a single dollar with the idea that at some point they're going to make billions of dollars but what a sad state that is for a business like that because you had 12 great years that you should have just been bankrolling money and instead you like kept looking to the future for this time that you're 
is going to magically change. And then during those 12 years, the app basically fell apart and they, so they're like, you just wasted, not only did you waste money, you wasted 12 years of your life where you could have been running an amazingly profitable business that was giving great things to the people that used it and giving great things to the people that were involved in building it. And that's such a crazy dynamic to set up for yourself. Right. But if there's no voice of reason, if your investors, you know, the community you've surrounded yourself with. Oh, yeah. Investors are telling you, go, go, go. It's a lot easier to spend than it is yeah. to earn money. So you're going to take the easy path and say, well, my investors, it's their money. They want this. Um, totally. I don't ever like I have no judgment towards anything because I know everybody's situation is totally different. I just think it is fascinating. Like, I think it's fascinating that the idea of business in general, like let's say you go to Harvard or Stanford or MIT, if you take an entrepreneurial course, they're going to teach you about that system. And then they're going to plug you into that system. But it's like, that's an odd dynamic to set up with young people in general, like businesses don't make money for the first X amount of years. And then they sometimes are worth way more. So this is the way that you should build businesses once you leave the school. But the, the other interesting thing is like, well, those kids are already in a situation where they're in the top 1% of people in the world right. anyways. Right. So let's say they go out and start a business and they fail. Their life really isn't going to get that affected by it. They are going to go on to land another job. They could raise more money in the future, most likely. Like, whereas other people that don't go to those institutions, like if you built a business that financially made no sense and then you failed, the bank's not going to give you more money. Right. The right. next time. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is a huge difference. And that's such an interesting point. And it probably is one of the things that drives me as well. Like, you know, beyond the fact that these people have trusted me with their money, like, if this doesn't work, I don't come from that. I don't come from like a background, you know, none of my family's invested. No one has the money to invest. Um, you know, the friends and family around that everyone talks about, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, they weren't my friends and family. Like, that, that was the farmer's market. <laughs> yeah, <basically>. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there isn't, and certainly I could go out and get a job, but there's nothing to fall back on. There's not this community to fall back on or this other opportunity to start a business. If this fails, it's my reputation. It's the, the, all the connections I've built have been through this business and are associated with this business. Um, yeah. And if it fails, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a big failure. I'll have to like move, you know, pack up and move to another state. Um, but yeah, that's a really, really interesting perspective. And one of the things on my journey that I've been, I've always tried to be very clear about and give a voice to is that if I can do this, anyone can, I don't have some kind of special background. I don't have a wealthy family. I didn't have like a foot in the door anywhere or any kind of advantage. Um, and I think, unfortunately, when you hear a lot of founder stories and dig in, there's that piece of like, oh, well, their dad was this person, or they had this huge connection, or they used to be the head buyer at Target. So obviously, when they launch a product, it's going well, because they put it out in all the targets. Um, 
you know, there's none of that in this story. And I hope that that is something that encourages other people. Like you don't have to have a leg up. You can have a great idea, be thoughtful, um, and put in a lot of hard work and, and see success. Yeah. I think too, like the idea of starting small is also great because you started small at the farmer's markets and then everything built up from there. It's like, without that, I think your idea of the relationship with venture capital would all be very different. Um, like in your confidence level in dealing with, with that world and, and knowing that you might have different views about things Mm -hmm. also would feel very different. Like you might think, that you were just doing it wrong or something because you hadn't previously built a business before getting involved with that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that goes back to this connection to the customers. We're so closely connected to our customers. We know that there's a market for this, no matter how many times investors question it or, you know, maybe say that there isn't like, we know that there is, um, yeah, I you know, there's been plenty of times where I've felt embarrassed to say that I've I've been in in business this long or had my entrepreneurial journey has been this long because you see the things like RX Bar or name a mil, you know, 20 other hot brands that it's like, oh, 2 years in, they've blown they're doing hundreds of thousands in sales and they've blown up. Um where it, there are moments where it's it, I have like felt embarrassment about my my journey. Um but I think that the fact that we can sustain and hope, hopefully be a profitable business that's like adding to the economy and, you know, actually supporting jobs on the other side of all of this, um, hopefully some of that embarrassment will go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I had a great time talking with you. Absolutely. Same. Hopefully, hopefully I can have you back on after all of this uh, calms down a bit and the, the future looks a little bit more certain. Yes, definitely. Would love that. Bread, 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 bread.